Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting and joined by Peter Martin for the next hour to answer your Bible questions. If you'd like to send them to us, feel free to email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like to take advantage of that both during or before the broadcast, you can also note the proper spelling of that on our website, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, where you can contact us directly. That's C-A-L-V-A-R. ChristianFellowship.com, and noting that point as well, if you want to click on the Watch Live tab there, you'll be sent to where you can engage with us face-to-face and chat on the right-hand side of the screen from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday. If social media is your preferred medium of communication and interaction, Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and YouTube is a reason for hope. However, since we don't control when or why we're taken off of those platforms or even muted in certain instances, feel free to join us on our website. We, at the moment at least, have full control of what goes out to you and when. If you want to talk to us about controversial issues, issues of biblical prophecy, issues of other religions, and so forth, note they're welcome on the broadcast as long as they fit three criteria. First, they are sincere, meaning you want to hear the answer, that they are about the Bible in the substance of the question, and of course, the fact that it is a question-answer format. If you ask in the form of a question, we will address it with an answer. But noting that point as well, all are welcome in that rule framework for the next hour, and we're looking forward to engaging with you. And note as well, if we don't get the time to address your question, it doesn't mean that it wasn't worthy or that it somehow was deemed as less than important. Time is, of course, unforgiving. So if you want to email us your questions either after the broadcast when we conclude, and we will get to them in the next time, that will help us out because it keeps it all organized for us. We don't have to start sifting through old files while we're trying to think of what's currently being presented to us. Note as well that we want to make sure we're taking time that the Lord is going to speak more than we do in these matters. So before we get into our Apologetics Tuesday topic, or Wednesday, for those of you listening on Reach Radio, uh, Peter, want to start us off in a word of prayer, see where the Lord takes it? Yep. Uh, Father, we love you so much, and we're thankful for you and and the work you're doing in our lives and your sovereignty over the world as a whole. Uh, We do pray that this time would be for our benefit in your word, in your truth. Uh, Allow me and Sean to speak in a way that honors who you are, God, and those listening would be benefited by it, that they would be encouraged by it and strengthened by it. In your name, amen. That is true. Now, Continuing on with our apologetics topics, you and I as bona fide protesters, or (laughs) Protestants as it's often referred to, uh, aren't necessarily a deviant sect from Christianity. The Reformation was trying to basically form radical Christianity. Radical not meaning violent, but to the roots. If your religion is violent at the roots, then deal with that. But when it came to Christianity, the Reformers had a series of calls for the Church universal as it was known. Catholic means universal. And with the government power that kind of fell into their lap out of necessity and historical circumstance, obviously that uh, ended up 
them doing jobs they didn't have to do, or at least weren't called and equipped to do. And it created a big mess. We can talk about the concerns with that at another time, but when it came to the challenges that were made to the church, we can you know go through Martin Luther's 99 Theses and all the merits and demerits of some of the things he talked about. But if we were going to narrow it down to four, it was obviously the ones most significant even to this day. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Deus Gloria, and so forth. What was the fourth one? Sola Gratia. Sola Gratia, thank you. Yeah. So grace alone, for those of you who don't speak Latin, <laughs> glory of God alone faith alone, and what we're going to be talking about today, Scripture alone. Starting with that, and obviously we've mentioned it on the broadcast before, one of the four non-negotiables, coincidence by the way, uh, concerning what would make or break someone as a Christian, someone we could agree with or disagree with agreeably, and of course to clarify the concerns about secondary issues from primary ones. It starts and ends with the Bible. If your definition of Christianity goes beyond the Bible, if your version of Jesus goes beyond the Bible, if your understanding of a relationship with God goes beyond the Bible, then it is by definition not Christian. So with that then in mind, we should obviously put up or shut up, as they say, what reasons do we have to treat the Bible as such a foundation? What are the merits to that? And what have been some of the challenges to it even today? Yeah, no, no, no. And like Sean said, no better place to start than right here. Because last week, if you were with us, we talked about mere Christianity, the movement that began through, uh, you know, started a little before C.S. Lewis, but C.S. Lewis got the ball rolling in a really important way. And it brought about a lot of unity within the church that was previously massively divisive and antagonistic towards one another, that we could see fellow brotherhood amongst other Christians, even if they do not fall under the same denominational strictures that we do. So uh, we want to be as broad as we possibly can in our understandings of who is saved, who constitutes a true believer in Christ without negating the boundaries as a whole, saying, well, there, there are no boundaries. Everybody is going to be saved. No, we can't go that far. We have to say that there are clear boundaries, but we want to make them as gracious, as wide, as liberal as physically possible, and we want to narrow them to the most important aspects of what it means to be a Christian. Without sacrificing <clears throat> truth. Absolutely. So uh, last week we talked about the non-negotiables, what does constitute a Christian, and as Sean said, they fit very nicely in the Reformation's solas, uh, their, their perspective of what constitutes biblical Christianity, and we're going to talk about them and then see, see how the Reformation standards apply, how we should understand them, and like Sean said, what are the merits and what are the challenges to these particular points of view. So uh, the non-negotiables that we have are, you got to believe in the Bible as the inspired Word of God. We'll talk more about that in a second. You got to believe that God is who is revealed in the Bible, the monotheistic God that is revealed in the Bible, no other. You have to believe that Jesus is God in himself. He is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. And you have to believe that we are saved and brought into a relationship with God through the sacrifice of Christ alone, and we access that grace through faith alone. Very important. So like I said, that goes through the solas of the Reformation. Now we have to explain why Martin Luther believed that the Catholic Church did not think this way, why today I can accurately suggest that there are many Catholics and many people in like the Eastern Orthodox faith and other places that actually have a lot of agreement with us here, 
and would be considered brothers and sisters in Christ, and why Martin Luther was so adamant of saying the people who follow the dictates of the Roman Church do not believe these things, and therefore they are actually outside of the faith. Because again, let's clarify, at the time Martin Luther was saying this and what he continued to claim about himself going forward was as a fellow Catholic. Right. He didn't claim apostasy and start a new religion. Absolutely, absolutely. And his beef was with the governmental structure of the Roman Catholic Church, not with the adherence to it. As Sean said, he referred to himself as a fellow Catholic. And once again, for those of you guys just joining us, the word Catholic just means universal, right? So when you look into church history and you see the word Catholic pop up all over the place, don't freak out. That word just means universal. The universal church of God, the Catholic church of God is what we believe in. So let's take that, uh, that first thing. And by the way, this is how the statement is structured. Christians are saved by grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone, as revealed by scripture alone, sola scriptura, for the glory of God alone, sola uh, I can't remember. So, uh, so uh, Deus Gloria. Deus Gloria, of the glory of God alone. And we're going to go through all of those, and hopefully we'll all be very edified through going through these. Now, uh, the idea of Scripture alone, it's sometimes been misunderstood, where some people believe that what we are suggesting is that the Bible is the only source of inherent and infallible truth. Now, we don't believe that. Now, once again, listen to the statement. Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed by Scripture alone. What truth is the Bible infallible in revealing to us? Those pertaining to salvation. That's right. So you don't go to the Bible to figure out math. You don't go to the Bible to figure out physics. You don't go to the Bible to figure out what we even believe about, say, taxonomy and the naming of animals and speciation and everything like that. That's not where you go to the Bible. The Bible contains things that you can consider mathematical and, phys and physical and things like that, but it is not a textbook for those uh, subject matters, right? That's why the adherents and the creators of the modern scientific movement were all Christians. They all understood the Bible does not speak to these things, so we have to discover these things for ourselves using the reason that God has given us in the uniformed naturalistic environment that God has created for us, right? And we can get into that more if you guys want, but that's not the topic for today. So, Scripture alone, this is what we as Christians are saying, when it comes to having a right relationship with God, Scripture alone is the sole infallible rule of faith. It doesn't mean that other truths aren't out there. It means that when it comes to knowing God, the only source of truth that we have received from God, the only revelation that we can say, this is perfect, you are not going to go astray if you listen to this, is the Scripture. Anything else, it doesn't mean that it can't contain truth. It's just that it is not infallibly inspired. It can contain truth and error when it comes to our relationship with God. And there are some writings that, by the way, are 100% accurate, but they're only 100% accurate as so long as they match up to Scripture. So let me put it this way. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, who I know has been discredited from his bad lifestyle, he had a really good metaphor, though, so I'm, I'm sorry that I have to use this metaphor. It's just very, very excellent. Truths right. from the mouths of lecherous <laughs> men are still true. That is right. So he said, you know, if you were, and this happens all the time to me, you're at a stoplight, and you look down to do something. You look down to text, which you shouldn't, but let's be real, we all kind of do it, uh, or you're, you're getting a piece of gum, or you're changing the radio channel, or, or something like that. You look down, you look back up, and let's say when you look back up, you see the cars next to you moving, okay? Now here's the question. Are you moving? Did you accidentally left, lift your foot off the brake, or are they moving? Did they start going? 
how do you distinguish between the two? Well, you need to look for some sort of an objective standard of movement to know that. So you look for a light pole, you look for a tree, you look for something that isn't moving, and that is your rule of faith. That is your rule of understanding whether or not you are moving or they are moving. So if I look up and the trees aren't moving, guess what? I'm not moving. But if I look up and the trees are moving, since trees don't normally move, that means I am the one that's moving. So when we look at scripture, scripture is the trees in this metaphor. It is the only thing that does not move. So if we look at the Bible, and the Bible seems to be moving, <laughs> it is not the Bible that is moving. It is not the, faith, the, the true faith in God that is moving. I am moving, and I am moving in, by definition, the wrong direction. But if I look up and the Bible is right where it was, I'm not moving. But if I look around and the church seems to be moving, guess what? The church is moving. The Bible is not moving, right? So hope that metaphor helps. So other churches have declared, well, no, 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 like the Bible is not the sole infallible rule of faith. The sole infallible rule of faith is actually the church. God leads the church via the Holy Spirit. The church is who gave us the scriptures in the first place, right? How do we even have the books that we have in the Bible? Because the church said so. So therefore, scripture itself is a result of the traditions of the church, and actually the traditions of the church are the sole infallible rule of faith. We base everything that we do on what the church says. Now, scriptures are important in that ideology, but the scriptures are still given to us by the tradition of the church and can be interpreted through the tradition of the church. And that's the kicker, is interpretation and authority. Who gave you the right to tell me that's what this means? Because words on paper can mean lots of things. What narrows down the authority to take your word over someone else's? Mm. There are churches that would claim that authority exclusively for themselves, and there are churches like our own that give mankind enough credit to be indwelt by the Spirit and hear from him individually. That's key. Absolutely. So we're running low on time for this this uh, little part of our series. So I'll just wrap up a couple points, and then next week we can get into some scriptural background. Why would we believe it from scripture? We may even give you some early church father quotes. It's really quickly, those of you guys who don't know what that is, the early church fathers, it doesn't mean that these guys actually fathered the church. It just means these are people who are in the early church. Right? So these are the writings we have from the earliest members of the church going all the way back to the first century, which would be guys like Clement of Alexandria, Ignatius of Antioch, people like that, all the way up through medieval history, uh, including guys like Thomas Aquinas and, yes, Martin Luther. These are guys that we would consider early church fathers. They're just early people within the church. Now, when we come to early church fathers, how do we view their writings? Once again, it's not that we throw them out and we say, well, these guys are not the Bible, so who cares what they have to say? Well, we should care an awful lot about what they have to say because Christians throughout the ages have been trying intently to be able to rightly interpret the Word of God. Because once again, Scripture doesn't change, but can we wrongly interpret Scripture? Yes, we can, and we often do. Now, again, that doesn't mean the Scripture's changing. It just means that our perspective on Scripture has changed, and we want to correctly align ourselves with Scripture. And so when we read the early Church Fathers, we're getting perspectives on Scripture, and it's very informative to us, but it's not infallible. These guys can be wrong, and they often are. And maybe next week I'll talk about some of the early errors that you do see pop up. But really quickly, Sean, before we wrap up for today, when it comes to interpretation of Scripture, what do we say to people who are like, well, all these Christians, they have all these various understandings of Scripture. You know, doesn't that mean that Scripture is 
not really a good rule for infallible faith and everyone just kind of sees into it what they want and don't we need something more solid than just scripture alone in order to guide us in our path towards God? Well, that'd be all well and good if something has been provided, but once again, you have to assume you've been given that. If we give the Holy Spirit enough credit to, as he himself was advertised, to lead us into all truth, I would have more confidence in that than self-appointed and self-proclaimed men who also have just that same authority as I do, but with the barrier of pride. So note this point. If I'm going to look, and we'll take more time to discuss these in detail next week, various passages that would emphasize, take heed to the traditions which you heard, past tense, not future tense, from me. What is that in reference to? There is a right and a wrong way to answer that question. It's not every opinion's valid. There is, in fact, a wrong way. And I'm not going to wipe your tears away if you say, you put red marker on my paper. Now I'm going to go off to live a miserable and lonely life because of you. Modern psychology at its finest, but let's just focus on the facts. If we can agree on the fundamentals, and that's what we started with, that's what we'll end with, I call you a brother. The things that we disagree on more often than not, and more often almost always than not, it's going to come down to those fundamentals. If, on the other hand, it comes to groups that would challenge those things at their foundation, you'd notice, and we'll discuss this more when we discuss the cults, like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and so forth, that they always begin with challenging the authority of Scripture, which the ones that we disagree with generally don't do. Mm. It's not that Scripture isn't an authority, it's that they want to be certain they're under that authority. And we'll talk more about how sola scriptura can stand on its own authority, define its own authority, and establish it in our lives as well. If I get a wrong answer, then I have the opportunity to grow. But if, on the other hand, I get one question wrong too often and say, that's it, I can't trust anyone or anything to lead me into truth apart from those people that I'm now choosing to trust. Now that sounds silly now that I say it out loud. We want to make sure the Spirit is the one leading us into all truth and how we could know and verify those things. It's a lot simpler than people make it out to be. So that said, uh, starting us off, a question from Yari, who wants to know, an individual from the Pentecostal bent said, do we have dominion over the animals? And a family member uh, went out and commanded animals to leave and they left. But the question is, can we control and command animals the way Adam and Eve did before the fall? Thank you. Uh, Yari, I do not recommend you test that bad doctrine, and I will call it that because, like we just finished talking about, there is a right and a wrong way to handle Scripture, and within Scripture we can find the answer. Now, it does indeed say in Genesis chapter 1, the first introduction of mankind to God's stuff was to do this with it. Verse 26 of Genesis 1, God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, cattle over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then goes on to note that he created them, male and female, he created them. So in this act of creation, there was a responsibility given by God to exercise dominion over the earth. Does this mean that every time uh, Adam woke up in the morning, he's like, oh man, I gotta tell the bees to start pollinating the flowers, and now they, they had their autonomy. But even in setting boundaries, that's never the way that it's applied. Animals are just kind of doing their thing in the way that they ought to, and where or when Adam exercised that dominion, it just seemed to be a part of him by nature. Even if I was to, and let's 
be fair here, grant the interpretation that that is what dominion means, which is not in the Bible, it's assumed into the Bible. First mistake, are there other passages in the Bible that would say, like you mentioned, Yari, before the fall, which we're currently in now, we're currently in the fall, do we still have that authority? Well, in the epistle of John, 1 John specifically, chapter 5 and verse 19, what does it say? The whole world is under the sway of the devil. So if there's an authority over this world, it's not us. It's not something that is being exercised by us. That's why we see nature as ugly and intrusive as it is. Now note, there are still ways to exercise dominion to an extent over animals. I uh, recently picked up the rule of interacting with bears. If it's a black bear, you yell, get back. Black means get back. Just make yourself big and loud. They'll answer to that because they're opportunistic eaters. They don't hunt. They just want to start eating stuff. And if you show you're going to put up a fight, they're like, I'm five times your size and 10 times your weight, but not worth the effort. Brown bears, on the other hand, it's brown, lie down, play dead, because they don't, uh, well, care for that sort of thing. <laughs> so make that point clear. Oh, and uh, just as a side note, if it's white, say good night. Polar bears, you're dead. So that being said, you don't run into Luckily, polar bears. Luckily, there's not many of them, yeah, especially not in Tucson, thankfully. Yeah, unless they get out of the zoo. That was an interesting story last weekend. But anyway, the point being made is this. When we hear people bringing up these ideas in the Bible, it's not hard to be able to spot that sounds fishy. In fact, you can just probably smell to keep the illustration up. That just doesn't seem right. But we always make sure to check it with other passages of Scripture. Do we have and are exercising the same dominion as we did in the Old Testament? Well, no, because after Genesis 1 came Genesis 2, or Genesis 3, my addition is correct, and that, of course, put us into the scenario that Romans 8 1 John chapter 5, and many others clarify we are not currently exercising the state that we will one day be restored to. We can see glimpses of it in Isaiah chapter 11, for instance. It'll note that the sort of things that are hostile towards us, cobras and um, wolves and so forth, won't be dangerous to us anymore. That's an example of dominion. They'll reflect our nature and characteristics, but it would be inappropriate to say, and here's the key, I had this experience, I associate it with this Bible passage, therefore that Bible passage means this experience. A, that's coincidental, B, that's not how anyone handles any written literature ever, and C, uh, it's not going to take long before you find out the limits of that. And I'm sure you walk up to the person and say, it didn't work, I got mauled by a bear, and they could say, well, you just didn't have enough faith, brother. On we go. Anything to add? Uh, yeah, so as Sean said, that is the commandment that Adam is given in regards to nature pre-fall. Well, what happens after the fall? Does God give us a new commandment when it comes to how we relate to nature after the fall? Well, he does. So after the flood, God is speaking to Noah, and this is chapter 9, verse 1. And, and listen for the similarities between what God says to Noah versus Adam and what are the differences. So... <clears throat> Chapter 9, verse 1, it says, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Sounds very much like Adam. Now, notice he leaves out the subdue it part. Okay. Next, verse 2. And the fear of you 
and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and on all that move uh, move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, that you uh, shall not eat the flesh with its life uh, life in it. That is, its blood. Surely, for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I will require it, meaning that beast will attack animals, right? But God's saying that I will require some sort of a penalty towards the beast. And this is something that uh, you even see echoed in the book of Leviticus, right? So right. if an animal gores a human being, even if it's a, a, a flesh, not a flesh eater, a uh, herbivore, eater, right? An herbivore, uh, you are supposed to kill that animal for that reason, to recompense for the life that it took. But so, also if he had a tendency to thrash, right. the owner is also held responsible because yeah. he should have made efforts in that. A little bit on the hook, right? Yeah. <laughs> rightfully, uh, rightfully given. But at any rate, you see a very different commandment given to Noah. God does not say the same thing he said to Adam. He says, okay, there's going to be a tension now between you and the animal kingdom. They're going to be afraid of you, which is good, and you're going to eat them, and that's why they're going to be afraid of you, but they also might get lucky every now and then and eat you, <laughs> and that, that does happen. Now, throughout the Bible, you do see God supernaturally allowing people to command animals. So, for instance, Elijah, uh, I'm sorry, Elisha is able to direct some bears to some, uh, let's say, miscreants, to put it mildly. <laughs> crowd of 50 people literally threatening his life by referencing the way his predecessor Elijah was taken up into heaven. Not, uh, well, I see 50 people walking towards me. I don't assume they're collecting for the Red Cross. Right. <laughs> and Daniel, but Daniel doesn't actually exercise any dominion over the lions. God just supernaturally shuts their mouths. So a very different instance there. But uh, in the New Testament, you don't see anything like that. So if you're going to hold that belief, you have to believe that every single Christian who was mauled in the gladiatorial arenas just didn't have enough faith. Um, that's a bit of a harsh critique if uh, some people who have far more faith than you and I will and had to actually test their faith in a far more extreme way than you and I will to say that somehow they were, didn't contain enough faith to command those animals not to eat them. I or think their is, children in front of them. I think is incredibly slanderous and something and I wouldn't, and very proud, and I, I wouldn't want to say such a thing against such faithful men and women. All right. A uh, question from S.A., uh, speaking of Ravi Zacharias, is it possible to be so entrenched in sin and still be saved? Um, I don't think it's worth going into the controversy surrounding him. You can mention other people that have been caught up in areas of sin like Jimmy Swaggart and so forth, but the point, I think, stands as a universal application, wink, wink, when it comes to the issue of if I sin or if I keep sinning or, here's the big one, if I don't stop sinning forever, does that mean that I'm not saved? Not necessarily. So, so again, what you see in the scriptures, and you do see a lot of passages that say, uh, make your call and election sure, right? It talks about by their fruits, you will know them. What the Bible, what the biblical authors are saying, in other words, is that from a human perspective, it is right for me to judge whether or not someone has a relationship with God based on their behavior, right? Now, what they're talking about when it comes to behavior, by the way, is they're not saying incessantly, like, if they are in any particular sin, you should assume they're not saved. Uh, we don't see the Apostle Paul address it this way, let's say in the book of Corinthians, where if you read the kind of sins that the people in Corinth were engaged with, they would be candidates for me to doubt their salvation. When a guy is having intimacy with his own stepmother, I might doubt his salvation, but Paul doesn't. 
right? So he says, I will give such a one up uh, for the destruction of his flesh to Satan so that his spirit may be saved in the day of judgment. So even a guy who is having physical intimacy with his own mother, Paul doesn't question his salvation. Uh, or later on in 1 Corinthians 6, where he's talking about the Christians who are having sex with prostitutes, he once again does not question their salvation. Uh, right? So he talks about them being washed and sanctified and justified in the blood of Jesus Christ. However, what you do see is people, let's say in Second Peter, or people in the book of Jude, or people in the books of John, and when I say the books of John, I'm not talking about the Gospel of John, I'm talking about First through Third John, he does seem to, they do seem to look at men and women who are not just sinning, but actually glorifying their sinful behavior. So they're not just doing wrong things, but they're like, this is the way that we ought to live as Christians, right? We, we should have sex with prostitutes. We should go out and uh, worship at idols, and we should eat animals with the blood in them and other uh, paganistic types of practices, right? These people, the apostles, are very, very clear. They are not saved, right? These guys are not saved. They are taking the grace of God, and they are using it as an advantageous thing. It is not good. They are definitely, definitely not saved. The people who are following their commands, there's a little bit of ambiguity there, meaning can someone be taken under by some of these false teachers and perform these actions as a result? Possibly. And that's why I say there's, there's some ambiguity there. However, I am not to look at someone's physical behavior and assume because of this behavior, I can know for a certainty that they are not saved. Why not? Well, if I use that metric, I have to throw out many people in the Bible who we know for a fact were saved because their behavior was very, very entrenched in sin. Now, once again, this doesn't mean that someone who professes faith in God is necessarily saved. It just means that if the profession is true, and I can't know their heart, then their behavior doesn't counteract their profession. That's all that means. So when you go into behaviors in the Bible, well, how about polygamy? Is polygamy pretty bad? I'd say so. David was a polygamist, right? And a bad one at that. Uh, he never repents of it. Right. He does repent of his adultery with Bathsheba, but he never repents of his polygamy. How, and by the way, not just polygamy, but it's polygamy and polyamory because he's having multiple wives and concubines that he was having physical intimacy with. And if you're going to say the culture justified it and God wasn't holding to that standard, no such luck. In Deuteronomy 18, which David had his own written copy of, it specifically includes not to multiply wives for yourself. He was violating a known and written standard of God's word. And by the way, when Sean says that it was written... David wrote it, right? Meaning that uh, in order to become a king, you had to write out the law <laughs> yourself. So you can't be like, well, I didn't read that. Well, you, you, you kind of wrote it out, so you, you definitely knew it. So yeah, David did not do that. Uh, how about a guy like Lot? Well, Lot not only was one of the members of the city council in Sodom and Gomorrah, which is not a great city to be on the city council of, uh, he, beyond that, was also willing to offer up his own daughters to be raped in order to prevent the angels from understanding just how wicked his city was. And then when God says, no, I'm going to judge the city, Lot actually tries to convince people to go, but he was such a hypocrite that nobody believed him. Then he still wouldn't go. The angels literally dragged him out of the city, kicking and screaming. He then goes up to a city that... There's more. Oh, yeah. He <laughs> goes up to a, a cave, right, because he asked God to spare an evil city so he could live in it. He doesn't live in it, so he lied to angels. Not great. Uh, goes and lives inside of a cave, ends up getting drunk and having sexual intimacy with his own daughters. Now, they did get him drunk and have sex with him, but still, he's their dad. 
If your daughters believe that that's a right way of living, I, I kind of got to blame the, the parenthood just a little bit. Uh, has sexual relations with his own daughters. Their kids end up becoming perennial enemies of Israel. So Moab and Ammon. Yeah, not a guy with a great track record physically. And if I was looking at a guy doing that, I would say, I don't think that guy's saved. However, Peter <laughs> says he is. So in 2 Peter 2, verse 7, Peter actually says that Lot was righteous. Now, where does his righteousness come from? Can't possibly come from his behavior, so it must be coming from his faith. That's what we believe. Very, very important. So again, just because someone professes faith in God doesn't mean that that's actually a legitimate profession of faith. So guys like Jimmy Swagger, when people ask where Jimmy Swagger saved, was Ravi Zacharias saved? We don't know. Right, that's between them and God. They made public professions of faith, but they could have been lying, right? Many people do. They could have been totally uh, utilizing their position as a pastor and a leader to feather their own nest, which it seems like they did. And maybe that was their motivation, but maybe not. Maybe they had a legitimate relationship with God and had conflicts in their behavior with their faith, which we all do, them just to a larger extent than most people. Uh, but again, we can't look at their behavior and necessarily say, we definitely know you weren't saved because of your behavior, because we just don't know that. Oh, and I'd even extend them a bit more grace and say, I'd be confident in their salvation because not just, oh, well, look at how much they did. Yeah, God's used weaker vessels. But the whole fact and foundation of what God continued to do through his spirit in their life, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3, no one speaking by the spirit of the Lord calls Jesus accursed, and no one speaking by the Holy Spirit calls Jesus Lord, the paraphrase. But the point being made is that. In Jimmy Swaggart, for the most part, um, after the scandal came out, he started making excuses for himself, but he never blasphemed or misrepresented God. He was still being used by the Spirit in spite of the weak vessel. Also note, Ravi, if you listen to any of his teachings, not a lot to correct here if uh, you guys were to bring it up on the broadcast. And I look at that fruit, and I realize, hey, God was speaking through this guy, and of course, also, his flesh was working through this guy. The flesh being done away with, he stands before God on that merit, on the basis of their relationship with him. And again, we don't know the heart. God is the one who searches those things. But if I look at myself, and this is what we have to avoid, and say, well, I'm doing all these bad things, or even worse, I'm doing all these good things as a metric for your salvation, it's two crossroads getting off the actual road. Focus on what Jesus has done for you, and that's the basis of your salvation. Your sanctification and the enjoyment thereof, that's another issue, but note the point. So let us know if that helps you out, S.A., and also note those who left questions to us yesterday. We are looking forward to hopefully hearing the ones we didn't get to. Here's a question from Renee, who wants to know if people can see demons, and there's an example of someone in their life who's seen uh, shadow people, silhouettes, and so forth, also noting it might have something to do with alcohol, but thank you for taking the question. Thank you, Renee, for asking it. It's a tricky one because people can claim to have lots of experiences, and as one prone to hallucinations myself, I can usually tell when something isn't actually there, when it's coming from my subconscious as opposed to a spiritual entity, I wouldn't say 90, yeah, 98% of the time that I'm seeing anything that's actually there, entities and spiritual. The other times I have to base it on the body language of others. It would be noting a coping skill. But regarding scripture in this regard, experiences aside, notice how I did that. Um, there's three places that would give us reason to doubt 
demons taking on a visual appearance and two reasons that would give us an idea there are instances where that can happen but through a uh, median so to speak the ways we would say it's unlikely is first in the book of job chapter four where eliphaz uh, granted he was in the wrong when he was making these statements but he still makes true statements throughout of it uh he describes something that a lot of you guys if you ever watch ghost hunters or something may find familiar <laughs> this is verse 12 now word was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a whisper of it. I was disquieted in disquieted thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. Fear came upon me in trembling, which made all my bones sp- uh, shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair on my body stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? And he goes on to emphasize the point further. But here's the idea being said here. This is in the context of poetry, so take it as with a grain of salt as whether Eliphaz is speaking from an experience because of limited scripture, whether this is a poetic observation, not an actual uh, instance of the event in the life of Job, or if this is uh, actually an encounter. We need to clarify, though, what makes the difference between a demon and an angel is the message, and this is a true one. So whatever uh, Eliphaz saw or didn't see, actually, it was sensational, but it wasn't visual. He could hear things. It interacted with him in a physical way, but limited to what the messenger, what the angel, that's what that means, uh, had to say to him. And it was, can a mortal be more righteous than his maker? Goodness is based on God's nature, not you thinking you're better than people. That would be the first instance of this spiritual encounter. The second is, again, another instance of an angel appearing to somebody, but in a physical form as they deemed fit. And this is in the book of Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 23. Renee, you can read it on your own time, but the angel Gabriel, and also in Luke chapter 1, is described in appearance as a man, not, you know, with wings or uh, unstylish robe or anything like that. He just looked like a normal guy. But Daniel rightly concluded it was Gabriel because he's like, haven't we met before? He's like, yeah, I'm the guy who gave you the other vision. It's like, oh, what, what, what now? <laughs> so, paraphrase, of course, but you get the point. (laughs) Uh, Continuing on, though, the third one is where we get that idea of, and this is moving from angels to the demonic, the gathering demoniacs. We can talk about the guys in Acts who beat up the uh, guys who were trying to perform exorcisms apart from relationship with God, and I'll be honest, I find the situation funny. Maybe you don't, but... (laughs) I'm a guy. So what you made is this. Uh, The demons did not interact with this world in a physical way. They had no visual appearance or any stature on their own, but they could interact through a medium, and that was a human body that had willingly welcomed that sort of spiritual influence onto themselves. We can also note the uh, Phoenician woman whose daughter was demon-possessed, and how that happened, I don't want to know. But the point being made is this. We're given situations where the demons in of themselves didn't manifest in physical form, but were given physical forms based on the poor spiritual decisions of someone else. And this is what brings us to the final point, is when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, Satan spoke to him. Now, whether there was a visual 
accompaniment to Satan's form, or it was just these whispers, just these encounters and movements and changes of scenery, we aren't told in the text. All we're told is the source of the voice and the voice as a audience uh, in our Lord, and of course his responses to it. We aren't told what Satan looks like in those passages. We know he's an angel of light, a very beautiful one and a very wise one, but ultimately a very corrupt and uh, not nice one. But the point being made is just that. If we're going to go off of what we have in Scripture, that's the point. Demons are spiritual entities. They can't take on a physical form, or do anything for that matter, apart from the permission of God. And as we see, there are examples of judgments of God. See, uh, for example, 2 Thessalonians 2 and Romans chapter 1. Read these on your own time, and if you need me to type these out for you, let me know, Renee. But uh, God handing people over to lies. If they don't want the truth, then he'll allow these entities to manifest in these ways. And of course, we have an example of that in the Old Testament as well. But the court of Ahaz, if you want to look it up, Ahab, excuse me. But the point being made is that demons are spiritual entities, thus they're not physical. They don't have a visual appearance. They can interact with the physical, which we have many examples of in Scripture, but whether they're a good messenger, angel, or a false messenger, an adversary, a demon, that's what that means, it's all centering around what message accompanies them, not necessarily what they look like. And most demons are quite content by just being distractions more than anything else. And again, we're just speaking from experience, but can inform that from Scripture. If your friend's having issue with the demonic, I'd say take advantage of the opportunity and say, well, if you want to deal with these things carte blanche, go to the one they're terrified of, because what does James say? The demons not only know there is one God, but that they aren't him. They tremble at the name of Jesus, and you can probably use this time of vulnerability spiritually to bring them back to a place of security in their relationship with God. That would be our advice as a follow-through, but note the point of the demonic. We can only go off of what we know. Um, Anything more to add or clarify? Yeah, there's one other instance in the Bible that may or may not be visible. We're not really sure because it hasn't happened yet. Uh, Revelation 9, John has shown some very creepy (laughs) demonic entities, to put it mildly. Now, are these perceivable by the people being afflicted by them in Revelation 9? We don't know. We have no idea, right? John's able to perceive them because he is in a vision at that point, and he's given special eyes to see these things. But will the people be able to? We have, we have no idea if that's going to happen or not. They'll feel the after effects, that's for sure. Yeah. But whether they'll see the cause of it, that's almost scarier. Yeah, absolutely. And so when someone is in a state of inebriation, whether it's from alcohol or drugs or something like that, your mind is not working very properly. And all of us, even in a sober state of mind, have seen things that weren't there. So you add to it drugs or alcohol, and you are very likable, uh, likely to see things that aren't there. So uh, it could be just a manifestation of your fears, your anxieties brought to the surface when you're in that inebriated state of mind, or it could be an actual presence of a demonic entity. I have spoken to a couple people in my life where I really do believe that they saw or were able to perceive something in the spiritual realm resembling a demon, right? One would be my sister who uh, had a big issue with drugs and alcohol. And when she sobered up, it was a night where she was high and she was laying on her bed and she felt a hand pressing down on her and she saw a form and she cried out to Jesus and immediately left. And she felt like she was sober at that point never do drugs again. So you have an instance where 
she probably did have an encounter with an actual God allowed for a demonic entity to be perceived by her to scare her straight. Let's put it that way. And, and that's uh, the key, because if it's, you know, oh, well, people can, you know, lean on something wrong, cut off blood circulation and put them in a state of paralysis and REM sleep. That's oftentimes where these night terrors or shadow people are mostly coming from. There's other instances where people, you know, are just on shrooms or whatever and they're just seeing a conglomeration of everything they should or shouldn't have been watching in the movies the last three weeks but the point of emphasis that would make you rightly discern no that was something real is their reaction to the name of jesus and this is the fine line Uh, for those of you who want to be exorcists out here here's exorcism 101 here's your (laughs) demonology class for the week the fine line between a mental disorder and demonic possession is that one name Two syllables, <laughs> five letters, J-E-S-U-S, Jesus. If they don't react to that, then you're dealing with something chemical. If, speaking from experience, again, it, they look like they just got hit in the head with a brick, you're onto something. That's because that's the only name in which we have any power over that. Yeah, and uh, two other examples that me and Sean like to talk about are the encounters of Muhammad in the cave as well as Joseph Smith in the forest. Now, interestingly, Muhammad, if you ever read his accounts that are contained in the Hadith literature of his encounter with... Yeah, the Sunnah more specifically, yeah. Right, his encounter with, quote-unquote, Jibril, the angel, uh, it seems very demonic, right? Uh, But you don't really get the idea that he saw something. He definitely experienced some sort of an entity that squeezed the living daylights out of him and freaked him out. It made him suicidal. Seems very much like an encounter with a demon. And when you look at the track record of his life after that moment, seems like (laughs) some demonic influence there. Uh, Beyond that, Muhammad was involved in some pretty unsavory practices and had some very weird beliefs. Joseph Smith is another good example. He changed his vision over the years Uh, So by the time you get to the end of his accounts of his first vision, that's what you're going to find in the Book of Mormon today at the back of covenants. Yeah, he says that he actually saw the father and the son, and they're the ones that talk to him. Now that his recounting of the first vision changes over the years. The first one he ever gave and recorded, he actually didn't see anything. He He just felt a great darkness that made him fear for his life. He thought he was going to get killed by something, and then all of a sudden everything turned to light, and he's like. So when you read his first account, it's creepy. Uh, It definitely mirrors Muhammad's encounter with the entity in the cave. And I would definitely say that I believe these two men did encounter a demonic presence. Now, again, they didn't, it doesn't seem like they saw anything, but they did experience something and it did change them, but not for the better. So... And uh, speaking of false messengers, uh, follow up from Yari, he names a few individuals, but people who are undoubtedly a part of false teaching ministries, false teachers, people would proactively seek to, quoting Galatians 1, pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether it's for their own gain in financial or in social stature. Would we say these people are saved? We'd have a much more solid definition for that. Entire books are written cursing these guys out, aren't there? Uh, absolutely. So th- there's something that the early church was not shy about, and that was declaring heretical that which was heretical. So we see Paul do that several times in the New Testament. We see him do it in the book of Philippians. We see him do it in the book of Galatians. 
a lot, <laughs> right? So uh, he is clearly calling out heretical teachers. He is calling them out by what they profess. Second Peter does this. Jude does this. And also he calls out a couple false teachers by name in the book of Second Timothy. So yep. we do know that the early church, if they recognized false or heretical teaching, they were very clear to say these guys do not have a relationship with God. Right, they're there. enemies of the cross of Christ. That's right. <laughs> so uh, we can. So like like I said, it's not a good metric to judge someone's belief in God based on their sin or their righteousness, because there are many seemingly righteous people who guess what aren't saved, and there are many very sinful people who are. But you can absolutely base someone's salvation on what they believe, right? So if they're what professing they and what they teach. So if someone is professing a heretical belief, then they are not saved. So I know very many Mormons. I've met them over the years. That put a lot of Christians to shame, right? They go on mission trips. I met this very nice couple just this year who are spending their golden years going out and ministering the gospel as they see it. Uh, very, very amazing behavior. I don't know many Christians who would do that, but they're not saved, right? Their, their behavior is very good, but they're not saved because they believe in a false God and a false gospel. So. Right, and that's another point, maybe worth as a side clarification. Yeah, I mean that if someone gets something wrong from the pulpit, are they a false teacher? No, we're obviously talking about a... Uh, Legacy, yeah. like the <laughs> individual that you mentioned by name, Yari. But the point being made is just that. If someone is a genuinely saved person and they kind of speak too far, and uh, maybe a personal example here, when we were talking about Revelation uh, 18 last week, not one of my finer moments. The notes could have been a little bit more well-structured. Mm -hmm. I was a little—I I didn't think it was a, a good message, but I wouldn't say that that affected my salvation at all. If I said something false, like, for example, uh, when I was in the very, very early days teaching through Micah, and, you know, I just said something that I, you know, would change my mind about now, I wouldn't say that that was a apostasy. But if, on the other hand, you come up to someone who's not like me in those situations and say, you know, I think you're a little off here. How dare you? As opposed to how I'm reacting around it now, it's like, I am so sorry. That's another difference. So. Yeah. Another good example of this is Martin Luther. We've been talking about the Reformation. So he said a lot of good things, but he did say a lot of bad things. And one of some of the worst things that he said were his anti-Semitic remarks towards the end of his life. So uh, is he saved? I think he is. But he was wrong about things, and some of those things are cultural. You can understand why he had those particular beliefs, given his background and his temperament, but uh, that doesn't mean he's necessarily German. saved. Yeah. <laughs> We're both German, by the way. We can make those jokes. Oh, St. Augustine, didn't he write an entire book called Retractions, where he was yeah. clarifying previous beliefs that he had to clarify yeah, a little like, bit? Yeah, he's like, may have been a little off about that, you know, at the end of his life, so... Even even a guy as smart as Augustine, and Augustine was very smart, can get it wrong sometimes. But again, we're willing to change our beliefs when we find out that we're wrong. I think God has grace when we are genuinely and sincerely mistaken. So again, there are guys that you could look at that uh, I was just telling Sean about, a famous church father named Tertullian. Great thinker, amazing, amazing thinker, but he wrote a book about baptism that is about as heretical as it gets. It's terrible logic, terrible reasoning, everything like that. Do I think he was saved? He probably was. Uh, a lot of his other writings are excellent, right? But he was a product of his culture, and he got something very, very wrong as a result of that. That's something I could give him grace for, and I could uh, trust the salvation unto God. Yep. Uh, apart from the grace of God, so gratia, right? We'll yeah. get to that later. Uh, as a follow-through as well, uh, some of the, I guess, uh, 
names that were mentioned by Yari were specifically in the bent of the prosperity gospel. Now, these people say the word Jesus a lot. They quote the Bible a lot. Uh, given especially your personal experience, not that he was a follower of it, but people very close to you have, why would we say that is, in fact, not a gospel? Uh, yeah, no, very good question. So once again, when we're talking about the gospel, when we're talking about what it is that pertains to salvation and God, it's very, very simple. It's laid out for us in multiple passages, but I think the best one is probably in the book of Galatians, right? Because in Galatians, you get the first heresy in Christianity, so to lay a little bit of the groundwork, what had happened was a group—Galatians, by the way, Galatia was a state. It wasn't a particular city. It was a—you uh, call a large it— large chunk of, of Turkey today. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like a large chunk of Turkey. So multiple churches are comprised in this area. <laughs> I, I heard myself say that out loud. Not yeah. Turkey, the food, the modern-day country of <laughs> yeah. Turkey. Big old section of modern-day Turkey, yeah. <laughs> or Asia Minor, as Paul would have known it. Uh, but at any rate, so Galatia is kind of like a state in that area, and many churches comprised within it. They were— being taught by some of the earliest heretical teachers that Jesus is great. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. He is fully God. However, you have to incorporate Judaism into your life if you want to be saved. Mm -hmm. And that is marked by circumcision. So they, they were really, really adamant about this. Ceremonial now, cutting off of the male genitalia, not entirely, just the foreskin, in order to mark yourself as a priest. Everyone in the Jewish nation would do that, not just the priests. Absolutely. So Paul, when he's talking about them, he gives uh, numerous other passages that talk about this. But Galatians 5, I think, is, again, the most succinct place. So Galatians 5, verse 1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not entangle again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. Here's the key there. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So what makes another gospel versus the true gospel? If you are seeking to be made right by works, right? If what you are doing physically is somehow making you right with God, Paul says you have fallen from grace. So by definition, you cannot get grace unless it is freely given, and he gives the answer here, by faith. Hope of righteousness by faith. That is how we access that. And again, as we go through the solas, we'll talk more about sola gratia and why that's so important and sola fide. But that's the essential point. Now, once you are saved, we are called towards sanctification in God. Like Sean said earlier, some of us are further along than others. and <laughs> We all have a long way to go in order to be like Christ. However, we are saved. We are in a right relationship with God by faith alone. That's what gets us there. That's the gospel. Anyone who adds to that gospel, as Paul says earlier in the book, let him be accursed. Let him be separated from God because they're teaching another gospel. And it doesn't matter what that work is, right? So if I go to someone and say, hey, yes, Jesus is great. He died for your sins. Awesome. But you must join this church in order to be saved. You must be baptized in order to be saved. You must and go down the list, right? Some sort of an action, some sort of a behavior that is now departing from the grace of God. And now you are incorporating a work to be right with God, which is antagonistic towards the gospel. All right, we got about two minutes here, so we'll uh, try not to engage in something too weighty before we sign off. 
But again, let us know if there are questions that are spoken of or that we don't get to in the short time that we have by email. That is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Uh, this last point, uh, question clarifying the uh, second or first Kings rather incident with Ahab and his counselors, where God deliberately sends lying spirits. Why is that? And of course, you can read the whole passage on your own time. Again, second uh, first Kings. 22, there are twos in there, so forgive me, all the way from the start of the chapter to verse 28 to summarize, this was a time in history where Israel was not pursuing God as far as the politicians are concerned. King Ahab was the husband of Queen Jezebel, who was a thoroughgoing pagan and a violent opposer of those who were worshiping the true and living God. Ahab let this all happen not only unimpeded, but aided often in the process if it was expedient for him, see uh, incidents with the field and so forth. But the point being made is just that. Uh, he forms an alliance with the king of the south, Jehoshaphat, who was a godly king, and he asks uh, his prophets of Baal, all, his wife's cronies, if you will, to prophesy the outcome of their battle with Syria. And he, they say, oh yeah, you're going to win. Look, we're cutting ourselves. That means good stuff. Well, Jehoshaphat, after he got his constitution back, asked, do you have a prophet of God here? And Ahaz says, he never says anything good about me, though. Not taking a hint, he thought that was just a personal insult. Micaiah, being a man after my own heart, starts off sarcastically by saying, oh yeah, you'll do fine. But you know it was sarcastic, because Ahaz says, I told you, tell me the <laughs> truth. And then he goes on to say, okay, here's a vision. God was uh, gathering together with a group of other cronies and said, who will go down and lie to Ahab? <laughs> and God said, sent down a, a spirit that would accompany these prophets. And so what was happening? It was judgment for Ahab proactively rejecting the truth. And, and Micaiah, the prophet who was thrown out on his tail into prison, was there you go, uh, was, of course, given that response and such when he told him the truth and said, hey, if I'm a false prophet, then you're going to come back from this battle. But thus saith the Lord, you're going to die. And guess what happened? So music is about to come on, so we will put the capstone there. Thank you all very much for the good questions. We've talked about the nature of the angelic and demonic, the nature of salvation, and the nature of Scripture, at least in part. Feel free to join us next week where we'll go into these things in more detail. And if you know someone or perhaps are listening and have more of a Roman Catholic persuasion or that ceremonial bent towards a relationship with God, by all means, send your questions too. But until then, see you next time. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.